And so he came up to me and said, Dad, I've got a great idea. I think you should uh, give out a lolly to the person who listens the goodest. <laughs> I thought, you know what, that's not a bad idea. So I actually have brought a lolly along with me today. Uh, no one claimed it at 8am. I don't know why that was. Maybe it's a bit early for lollies. But um, if you think you've listened the goodest this morning, feel free to come up uh, at the end and claim that from me. I will have a question you'll have to answer though, okay? So listen up good. <laughs> Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you for today and we thank you for uh, this time that we get to spend together with your people in your word. And we thank you, Lord, for that word that speaks to us wherever we are at. And we pray, Lord, it would speak this morning. Most of all, we thank you for your dear son, for his life, his death, and his resurrection, and in whose name we now pray. Amen. I'm going to start this morning by asking us all a question. It's a bit of an interesting question. How do you regard the Christian faith? By that I mean, how would you describe what it means to you? What term, what label would you give to it? For instance, maybe for you, Christianity is an interest or a hobby, or a weekly pastime. Or there might be some here for which Christianity is just more of a curiosity, and you're really just checking things out. For others, it might be a family tradition, or maybe it's a, a, a cultural heritage that's been passed down to you. What term would you use to describe the Christian faith? Maybe it's just the done thing for you. Or maybe um, it's actually something that you go along with really just to keep someone else happy. Some of us might consider it to be a lifestyle or a life choice. Others might say that it is a spiritual preference or a belief system or a religious worldview. Some might label it as a relationship or as a lifelong commitment to, to something that's bigger than yourself. I don't know. How would you describe it? What about the chief priests and the Pharisees in this morning's passage? If we were to ask them that, that same question, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they used the word revolution to describe it. It's a revolution. Revolutions, of course, are concerned with the forcible overthrow of social order with dramatic and far-reaching changes. And I mean, if you were with us just last week to see what happened in John's Gospel right before this, that's really what we see, isn't it? It's a resurrection revolution. Lazarus, four days dead in the ground. Wrapped for burial, head to toe. The guy had even started decomposing a little. And then with just three short words, Jesus overthrows the social order of life and death. It's a resurrection revolution. Sadness turns to joy, mourning turns to celebration, and a dead man gets brought back to life, and nobody has ever seen anything like it before. Today's passage captures two gatherings that take place in the aftermath of this incredible miracle. 
The first is a gathering of Israel's leaders in a meeting called the Sanhedrin. The second involves Jesus and some of his closest followers gathering around a meal in a town called Bethany. Now, both of these gatherings happen in response to Jesus's miracle, and yet they couldn't be more different to each other. They really couldn't. John places them side by side for us, which helps us to notice the stark contrast between what it looks like to resist this revolution and what it looks like to embrace it. As we've read already, when news of what's happened to Lazarus makes it back to Israel's leaders, they immediately call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is is the term given to the, the ancient Jewish court system and it was used as a place to discuss matters related to Jewish law. Now in verse 48, we can see the business for which they'd gathered together on this day. Take a look with me. Hopefully you've got the word open in front of you. Here is this man performing many signs, they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, they're saying, look, this Jesus fellow is leading a revolution and it's starting to pick up steam. He's just brought a man back to life, for goodness sake. If news of this gets out, every man and his dog is going to want a piece of what this guy is selling. Now, why might that be a problem for the Jewish leaders? Well, to them, revolution means one thing, catching the attention of the Romans. And that was never a good thing. You see, at this point in Israel's history, they weren't in control of their own affairs. It's actually the Romans who were. Judea was an occupied territory, and they were far from the only ones who were. You can see from that map, Rome occupied a whole lot of real estate, like the entire Mediterranean coastline, which obviously would have included all the best resorts, a club med monopoly. (laughs) Generally speaking, the way that Rome liked to operate was you pay us taxes and we will kind of, sort of, let you do your own thing. Sort of. But if you step out of line, if you go and make trouble, then we will come and put you in time out. Only the Roman version of time out usually involved a whole bunch of these guys who always seemed to bring death and destruction wherever they went. So it was a tough love situation, just without the love. So this gathering of the Sanhedrin, it's pretty much like a crisis meeting, actually. Because as they see it, if this Jesus thing ends up going viral, if his resurrection revolution ends up taking off, then that becomes a situation they can no longer control And if that ends up happening, Rome will come and control it for them. And that will end up costing everyone everything. They simply can't let that happen. So at this gathering, they decide to take things into their own hands by putting a stop to Jesus' revolution before it gains any more momentum. As Caiaphas, the high priest, puts it there in verse 49, it is better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish how right he was. And with that, they decide to resist Jesus' revolution. 
there in verse 53, we read, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. One of the things that strikes me most about this first gathering is that it doesn't allow us to dismiss these guys quite as quickly as we might like. Usually, at least for me, when it comes to the chief priests and the Pharisees, especially at the, the end of the Gospels, I, I picture them as kind of evil caricatures. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those dastardly, moustache-twirling types who always seem intent on trying to tie people to train tracks. I don't know about you, but as I, as I read about the gathering of the Sanhedrin, I can't help but imagine them huddling together, rubbing their hands, twirling their moustaches, hatching their evil schemes. But you can see the problem with that picture, right? Like when we paint them as diabolical figures, it actually stops us from learning anything from them. Because at that point, they've become too removed from us. I mean, I don't twirl my moustache. I might if it was long enough. But I'd never think of tying someone to train tracks, so I certainly wouldn't be part of a meeting that, that was going to put Jesus to death. But pause for a moment and just think about what's driving their decision here, why they're doing it. Now, this isn't a, a group carefully considered, involved in cold and calculated plotting. They're, There is no evil, maniacal laughing at this meeting. This is a group of frightened men. The air would have been thick with their fear and worry. They would have been wringing their hands, not raising their fists. They were scared. They were scared. They were worried about the instability that Jesus threatened, about the risk of losing control. Ultimately, I think it was because they feared the future. What might happen? I mean, surely we can't relate to any of those feelings, can we? That awful dread of losing control of a situation, being gripped by anxiety and worry about our future, unsure about what might happen next. We never feel like that, do we? That's exactly what was driving these guys. They resisted Jesus' revolution because of the changes that it would bring, because it was unknown, because they didn't want anything to disrupt their comfort. They didn't want to lose power. They didn't want anything to upset the status quo. And so really, their decision to kill Jesus was a vote for stability. It was a vote for peace, for safety, for comfort. Most of all, it was a vote that would hopefully secure the future. You know, when you put it like that, maybe this gathering isn't as far away from us as we might have first thought. Have a think for a moment about your own fears, about your own worries. Think about that stuff that keeps you up at night, the stuff you're most anxious about. Those feelings have power, don't they? Especially when it comes to decision-making. And you know, when our fears and our worries are allowed to hold sway over our hearts, it becomes a whole lot more tempting for us to just opt for what is safe, for what's comfortable, 
for what's stable rather than what Jesus' revolution might be asking of us. I wonder, are there particular fears or worries in your life at the moment that might be stopping you from fully embracing life with Jesus? And if you're wondering what it means to embrace the revolution, we need to look no further than the second of the two gatherings in our passage today. As chapter 12 opens, Jesus is back in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. Now, Bethany and all the people who lived there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, it immediately connects us with the resurrection that Jesus has just only recently performed there in Bethany. Given what he'd just done there, how amazing and miraculous it was, you can kind of imagine the stir of excitement that that would have spread through the town as they, they heard that Jesus is coming back. What's he going to do this time, you know? And so they throw a dinner in his honour and everyone gets together to celebrate him being in the town. Martha is there, we read. She's helping to serve the meal. Lazarus is there as well, right beside Jesus, ready to eat. And then, well, then enters Mary, who goes and tips the most expensive thing she owns all over Jesus' feet. It's like, wow, where did that come from? help us picture the scene, we're told here that they were reclining for the meal, which might sound a little unusual because it, it kind of is, we don't really do this anymore, but it was an ancient custom where they'd put the food in the middle of the room and then set up the, the kind of beds really around the food and so everyone would kind of lie with their heads towards the centre and their feet towards the outside When you picture it like that, you can totally see how Mary could have come around and actually just started washing Jesus' feet. As Sky so eloquently explained for us earlier, it was a shocking act for her to do such a thing for a number of reasons. Because she was the one who was doing the washing, right? As Sky said, that that was a job reserved for the lowliest of servants, certainly not a host of the meal, and she was doing it once they were started eating, totally inappropriate. And then secondly, of course, she uses nard rather than water. Nard being uh, an aromatic oil, a perfume that they extracted from the spike nard plant, which is pretty much only found in India, which is what made it so expensive. Today, you can grab a whole 500 mils of the stuff online for just 50 bucks. Bargain, there you go. Back then, it would have cost Mary the equivalent of $120 per milliliter. And on this night, she goes and she tips half a liter of the stuff onto Jesus. It'd be like one hot Saturday Arvo deciding to wash your car with a case of Penfolds Grange. You can't imagine it, right? Your neighbors would be peeking over the fence going, um... Yeah, yeah, I can think of some better uses for that. As Sky said, this was an extravagantly outrageous act on Mary's part. Extravagant in its financial cost, outrageous due to the social conventions that she'd broken. And yet the most extraordinary thing here is that Mary could not care less about either of those two things. That's a perfect picture of what it looks like to embrace Jesus' revolution. 
this act of uninhibited devotion. It stands in complete and utter contrast, doesn't it, to what we see happen in the Sanhedrin and even to what we see happen with one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Just like one of your neighbours grumbling about the grange you've just used to clean your mud flaps, Judas pipes up there in verse 5. You can see it in our passage this morning. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? In other words, he's saying, yeah, I can think of some better uses for that. It's easy to sympathize with his question, I think, until John fills us in on what's really going on in verse 6. We're told he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's like, man, Judas turns out to be exactly like the Sanhedrin, doesn't he? They're both resisting Jesus' revolution. One is doing it in plain sight. The other one is hiding. But they're both consumed by self-interest. And ultimately, they both feared the future. I mean, think about it. Why else would Judas have been skimming money? It's not like he could have just gone and blown it straight away. It's like, oh, hey, look, our treasurer is wearing a brand new coat. I wonder where he got the money for that. (laughs) Now, this is insurance money. He's setting up a plan B in case this Jesus thing ends up going south. You see, Judas is actually the ultimate example of trying to have a foot in both camps. On the surface, you know, he's not just one of the 12 disciples. He's actually trusted enough to be the treasurer. And yet under the surface, we see he's feathering his own nest really trying to take his future into his own hands. That's exactly the same game that the Jewish leaders are playing, isn't it? And both of them stand in complete contrast to Mary. Mary, who takes the entirety of her security and her future, all of her wealth, all of her social standing, and what does she do? She pours it all out at Jesus' feet. Quite literally. In that profound and beautiful moment, it's like she's saying, you know what? I'm with you, Lord. I'm with you. What is my wealth? What is my social standing when I've got you? What else do I need? I am yours. Whatever happens, wherever it takes me, whatever it demands of me, I'm with you. Friends, that is exactly what it means to embrace Jesus' revolution. To give yourself over to him. To bind yourself to his life. To bind yourself to his death. To bind yourself to his future. You just can't do that in half measures, can you? See, the truth is Jesus cannot be sampled You can't just go out and get a six-month subscription. There is no short-term mission trip when it comes to his revolution. You're either going the whole way or you're actually not going along at all. There is no having a foot in both camps because Jesus' revolution asks for nothing less than our absolute commitment. And the fear I have for my own faith, 
the fear I have for the Western church in general is that I suspect we've become far too comfortable with being comfortable. We pursued stability before we've pursued transformation. We too quickly trade in our courage for comfort. And I think we've made an idol out of being safe. We worship being safe right along with the rest of our culture, don't we? And so perhaps part of my problem, part of our problem is that we too quickly forget that the Christian faith is a resurrection revolution, a revolution that calls us not to take to the streets with weapons of war, like the horrific tragedy that unfolded in Christchurch on Friday. Not like that, but to take to the streets with radical sacrificial love is that not what we're called to do to be radical in the generosity that we show to all people no matter where they're from no matter what their background is their tribe their race their religion everyone radical in the patience that we give even to those people who might not deserve it radical in the purity that we pursue even when it makes us look completely odd and out of place Radical in the hospitality that we provide, even when it's super inconvenient for us. Radical in the forgiveness we are willing to give, even to those who've hurt us the deepest. If we have forgotten, let's remember that this is a revolution. Revolutions are tiring, and they're dangerous, and they're costly. And so we should be willing to pour it all out just like Mary did and even more than Mary, just like Jesus did. Because of course, instead of priceless perfume on the feet of the Savior, what does Jesus do? He poured out his own blood on the foot of the cross. His very life was poured out for you and for me. That's what it cost to secure the future. That's what it cost. I mean, ultimately, that's, all, that's what we all want, isn't it? A secure future. And we go after it by doing whatever we think it will take for us to find that security. The Jewish leaders were after it. Judas was after it as well. And yet in the end, neither of them found it. You know, despite their scheming, 40 years later, the Romans would march into Jerusalem and lay waste to the temple. Exactly what they were worried about ended up happening. For all the wealth and riches that Judas managed to store up for himself by stealing, by betraying, he would be dead before the week was out. But Mary knew, didn't she? She knew that the, the one truly safe and secure place the only solid ground upon which to stand was right there beside the revolutionary, beside the one who is in the business of causing disruption, the one who upended the status quo, the one who was about to willingly walk to his own death. How crazy is that? What looks to be the shakiest ground actually ends up being the only stable place there is. Embrace his revolution. Bind yourself to him, the resurrection and the life. 
bind yourself to the only one who has ever raised himself from the grave, to the only one who is capable of raising you and I from the grave. For you will find no more secure future than with him. John Patton found his secure future with the revolutionary. He was a Scottish missionary at the turn of the 20th century. John had a heart for taking the gospel to the New Hebrides, which is what we now know as Vanuatu. At the time, these collection of islands had a, had a reputation for cannibalism. Just 20 years before John decided he wanted to go, a bunch of missionaries had been eaten, and yet he was still prepared to go. As he was preparing to leave, those in his congregation were trying to dissuade him, trying to convince him out of it. One older church member just constantly, he says, just constantly came at him saying, but John the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals when John was en route to the New Hebrides, he sent the man a letter in which he wrote this. Dear Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. There is a man who embraced Jesus' resurrection revolution. May we too. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these words that challenge us to consider what it is your son came to do how profound an impact that's made in our world, in our lives, and what it now calls upon us to do as well. Lord, we pray that you might banish the fears and the worries that take hold of our hearts and minds and stop us from fully embracing your revolution. Lord, give us the courage to get on board. We thank you, Lord, for Mary and the amazing example she is, the way she pointed to your son's own pouring out of his life. We pray, Lord, it might be an inspiration to us all. To your glory, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing our final song together now in response. It's also going to be a chance.